Hey, Dame. Yo. Do you happen to have any idea who this episode is brought to you by? Oh, I think I have a clue. I think I do. <laughs> this episode of Ergo is brought to you by Overcast, an independent podcast app that embraces the open world of podcasting instead of locking it down. No exclusives, no premium content, no paywalls, just a great podcast app for everyone. And if you know Ergo, we love independent and we love shit not being locked down. So <laughs> so go ahead and get Overcast for free on the App Store. We want freedom. I'm a scholar in Almanac. Hey, hey. Look who it is. It is us. It is me, Damon. And me, Kiss. We are Ergo back in the full audio flesh and we are here doing the thing that we do i'm excited for this one but first daniel how are you today i am doing pretty well we were just talking before the mic started rolling about something that has absolutely nothing to do with this conversation (laughs) and i'm very emotional and worked up so you're not going to know what it is listeners but just know that i have adrenaline coursing through my veins and i am happy to share this conversation with you my veins are also coursing (laughs) (laughs) no with all seriousness, very ex- excited and uh, grateful to present this guest with you today. We have Dr. Jared Ball, a scholar, a you know historical participant in in liberatory movements, an author, and uh, a phenomenal media maker. Who, to be very honest, y'all is like one of the the people kind of in the public sphere I have looked to in some ways to to figure out how to like communicate some of these very complex ideas. And so it was great to get to meet him through this conversation. Uh, whether he likes it or not, we're now pseudo homies. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> and he's, he's gonna have to deal with me. Um, and yeah, it was great. Any any reflections you had or takeaways you want people to get ready for? We talk about it a bunch in the conversation. But one of his like main texts that we really build the conversation around is his book, The Myth and Propaganda of Black Buying Power. You'll get a clearer sense through the conversation of what that means and its impact. But just flagging that as a foundational text, it'll be on our Ergo reading list as well on our website. You may want to go maybe read a paragraph description of what that means um, as you get into this conversation. We'll also put the link to the PDF of the book in the show notes for this episode. But yeah, really appreciated him coming through off of a cold email. We didn't know him at all, but Damon's been talking to me about him for years and it was great to start to learn from him. And this was hopefully the first of many more conversations to come with Dr. Jared Ball. As always, make sure that you subscribe, comment, review, ergo, wherever you listen to your podcasts. Uh, Follow us at Ergo Radio. Um, you can, of course, throw a little donation if you felt so inclined. We're not so focused on circulating dollars, but we'll take some. Uh, and yeah, I think with that, let's go ahead and get into this conversation with the one and only Dr. Jared Ball. Let's get it. All right, y'all. Excited for this one. We we are here with an, an amazing thinker, scholar, media maker, uh, somebody who, you know, has really impacted me and and helped me find space to develop my thinking in in just trying to be a world builder and in some of this work. We have Dr. Jared Ball with us. Burr, 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 burr. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so D- Dr. Ball. We have a, a tradition of how we kick off and how we check in. We start with a two-part question. 
and it's centered around time. In this time, Dr. Ball, how is the world treating you and how are you treating the world? First of all, I appreciate the invitation. And my answer is almost always the same to that kind of question and is perfectly honest. I'm being treated as well as I could be expected. It's, it's, it's all good. Yeah. Right, right, right. So I, I want to hop right into it. Like I kind of said a little bit in, in the intro there. Um, for the last, I want to say, five or six years, you have been just like a source of just radical thought that I've always checked in with and I've always come back to, to your platforms and to the work that you've been doing. Um, so I think it's important that we start with, I think, what seems to be your baby or what seems to be the the space that you um, dedicate most of your public energy to is around addressing the mythologies of capitalism and black capitalism as potentially a neutral space, potentially a non-harmful space, as a space that has any capacity for liberatory redistribution um, and how that's built in ideological mythology that, you know, is damaging to all people, but specifically Black people and specifically Black people who are trying to build power. So in starting with this text that you have published and you, you know, are just posted that there might be a second edition coming soon, but you also have a free PDF. Well, I don't know about soon. Soon? Okay. (laughs) Yeah. Well, I mean, they were just, that was just them reaching out saying they were interested in doing it. So I am excited about that, but uh, we're, that's all that's been said. So there is, and yeah, so soon it's it's not soon, but soon can be this hour, this moment, this season. <laughs> right, there you go. Right, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Right, Time right, is a construct. Right. Word. Okay, That's so right. That's so maybe coming um and and you know, want to get to the argument and the basics of the text, but I'm also a little confident in some of our listeners that like it will be an easy grasp for people to understand that like capitalism is not the answer. So I want to ask you now that it's been in the world in so many different ways, what are some of the new things you're learning about your argument, about your mission in talking and communicating to people who have received the text? Yeah, I really appreciate that. So what I'm learning is, is it's kind of a version of what I've learned in different ways for a long time, that no matter how deep I can get into a project or an idea, the impact I wanted to have is in many ways unattainable. In many ways, that's because I've intentionally targeted work that goes to what is my honest preference, just that just seems to be the most marginalized uh, or or deemed radical politics or or sections of of our communities. So like whether it's 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 pirate radio or mixtape radio or, or or local community radio, when it comes to broadcasting, it, it's kind of like my preference for political organizing. It's it, you know, very local, grassroots, off the record. So on the one hand, I want that work to have some massive impact, but then I'm sort of illogically confused when I walk out into the world and realize it hasn't happened. I mean, there's been so many times where I've left a broadcast booth where I know there's a hand, literally just a handful of people that could be listening, but I felt so good about the broadcast or the work or the argument or the, you know, whoever I was talking to, whatever, that I kind of felt weird when I walked outside and everything was exactly the same. So what I'm learning here is that I thought I found a way to, in many ways, sort of, as they say, defang my argument 
organize it in a palatable way and get it out there in a roughly kind of quick turnaround. And then what I'm learning is that there is, is a very sophisticated nature. First of all, what I'm learning is that I'm right. <laughs> that I've been right. <laughs> and that's sort of like to the point, like our analyses yeah. are right. So that it's just kind of weird sometimes where we're confronted with our own analysis smacking us in the face. Uh, uh, <laughs> so here I am saying there's a whole apparatus designed to prevent an argument about buying power from making sense and reaching its audience. And then I think I'm going to write this book and then all of a sudden it's going to somehow penetrate the apparatus I'm describing <laughs> that's there to prevent a discussion of buying powers. Yeah. Da, 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 da. Yeah, so yeah. so uh, the weirdest part has just been in very some personal instances where I see people that I know who should know better and should be able to do better are by position of their public performance, politics, or employment cannot engage the work. So it, it's just seeing the analysis become very, very, very personal. The matrix uh, is real. Yeah. Yeah. That um, apparatus kind of got like a Google news alert and they were like, all right, let's jump into action here. You're talking about <laughs> us. Let's do it. <laughs> Right. It's just, we'll just adjust a little bit for Jared. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's it. The, the one thing that resonated, and then Dave, I'm going to throw it to you. You were talking about that feeling of walking out of the booth, knowing you did it right, uh, and the analysis was right, and the form was right. And then it's like, wait a minute, why hasn't everyone else adjusted in that? One, I know that feeling of being on the radio and then coming out and like, like, oh man, it's still cold. You know, whatever, like the feeling is still <laughs> out there. Um, Y'all didn't get to this fire? <laughs> but the, uh, the other thing that it feels akin to is that feeling of being in direct action and like there's a, you know, a, a mobilized mass and you're coming up some big avenue in Chicago and it feels, you know, you feel the empowerment of that that collectivity and then it ends and you disperse and you walk literally one avenue over and there's no overlap <laughs> there like people are still going about their day i think that at least for me really shifted how i think about the point of that type of work right you know dame has really made this point of like a lot of movement work is for the participants and how it transforms the participants it's kind of the, one of the only ways I've been able to find motivation to not be completely disillusioned by that feeling of one avenue over, you know, people are still going into Starbucks. There was a brief time where, um, uh, shout out to WPFW in Washington, D.C., where, you know, I was a volunteer for a while. And it, it briefly, there was a, a, a move of location that was forced on the station that interestingly enough had us in this basement studio broadcasting out, out of some commercial studio spot right there in the, in the heart of K Street in DC, Northwest DC. And for anyone who is not familiar with what that means is that's lobbyist alley. That's PR public relations alley. That's that's the apparatus, yeah. <laughs> that's the apparatus. So the, the idea that this long time, you know, black radical community-based radio station would be there and then to the, I mean, we would literally walk outside and you're in the heart of Washington, D.C.'s lunchtime K Street crowd and, and who couldn't care less and would have absolutely not listened for more than two <laughs> seconds, even if they were passing on a dial. And of course, the world hasn't changed or, you know, uh, but it's just it was just still weird. You focus and you lock in. And then in many cases, these studios don't have windows. So you kind of it makes it easier to sink in. And then you walk outside and it's like, wow, 
yeah, the sun is still shining and they're still running everything and their, uh, <laughs> their messaging is still dominant. So yeah. Anyway. Mm, yeah. yeah. So I, I like to let guests and listeners in behind the curtain a little bit. This is weird for me in a lot of ways because this conversation has a lot of asymmetry of information of you just graciously kind of responded to an email <laughs> from us. And I, I low-key know a lot about you and your work. And usually when there's a guest that doesn't know a lot about us, I usually don't know a lot about them neither. <laughs> and, so, <laughs> and so I just want to like be maneuvering that because, you know, the, the argument that you written and have, you know, expounded upon in various platforms and mythology is not only like intellectually important to me, but there's also like a an element of of, of personal healing that I think is really unique that I want to get into. Uh, but before we do that, I think it's important that we uh, refine a little bit and go in specifically on buying power as a as a concept, because, you know, generally what your case is, is that capitalism will not save us. Black capitalism is not exceptional or not better, you know, it also will not save us, which is not a new point, right? But there is a, a specifics of buying power as a like ideological propaganda tactic that you use the word bludgeons black people. And I think is really true. So I just I just want you to like parse that out a little bit for folks who may not have got the specifics of of that part of the argument of what is that notion and why is it so harmful? And then I want to kind of share how hearing you dis describe that really affirms some things that were important in my personal journey. I mean, initially it, the, the whole thing was brought to my attention sitting in as an audience member in a lot of different, or as a participant in a lot of grassroots political organizational spaces and in discussion and sometimes in presentation, it kept coming back that on the one hand, we would be in these wildly sometimes militant settings where people would still bring up, well, but if we had our buying power right, if we pooled our resources, we could buy this and invest in that. And then we could flip this and flip that and do this and do that. And I'm sitting there saying, so on the one hand, we're having these incredibly, you know, off the map left conversations about the problem of capitalism, of white supremacy, of colonialism and all this da, 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 da. at the same time this idea kept coming back and i just kept saying wait a minute we would just see a presentation on how we have no money economically this is happening that's happening and then five minutes later we're still hearing but no we have this buying power we're just not using properly i mean for years this was going on so i finally just you know looked into it and, and again it's it's weird to, to, I think, still be the only one really to have done this. But at the same time, it's not that deep. You know, I mean, I'm not <laughs> I'm not trying to claim like, you know, you know what I mean? So what I am saying is that this is a subset of a subset of a subset of arguments. You know, like there is the broad argument of capitalism. There is the bigger argument of black capitalism and, and, and class struggle within the black liberation struggle. There's all these bigger bigger. So I'm just saying at the bottom is this one little thread that keeps getting dangled in every segment of the black public mm -hmm. sphere from the mm -hmm. most religious and right wing to the most rabidly left wing. And I don't mean to describe it as rabid. That's that's I don't mean because I that's where I am. But like <laughs> the most militantly left wing. You're like, look, mm -hmm. I froth from time to time. Like, we all froth sometimes. <laughs> that's it. That's it. You know, rap, <laughs> being, being rabid got a bad rep. Um, <laughs> the stigmatization of they're rabid baiting out here. <laughs> that's next. That's next. That's the next thing we have to tackle in all these issues. We have to organize the raccoons is really what needs to That's happen. It. We got to get the we possums get every... on board, the squirrels, get all the. <laughs> That's in the that was in the reprint 
of the Communist Manifesto, workers mm -hmm. and animals of the world unite. Mm -hmm. You have nothing to lose but your <laughs> false claims and bad branding. So, so yeah. So I mean, it's just this this thread is just dangled, and and when you and I just started to pull on it at one point and said, okay, well, okay, well, wait a minute. So buying power, what is the claim? Long story short, it's something that was developed by the government in conjunction with the economic elite in the turn of the 20th century that said, we want to figure out how much we can pay people without losing profit and giving them enough to purchase what they're producing and not being mad enough about their inequality to rebel. Longer story short, by the middle of the 20th century, it becomes a full-on branding and marketing phrase that is used again to help ad buyers streamline their marketing or ad revenue budgets to target segments of, of society. And to do that, they wanted to know how much are people making and where are they spending their money and where can we get in there and advertise to get our product? This was never a measurement of economic strength. It's not a measurement of income. It's not a measurement of wealth. It's Is not. It, if I'm not mistaken, you, you're saying it's not even a measurement. It's like a made up projection. They made it up. And then exactly. So the, by the end of the, 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 well, certainly by the 1990s, the Selig Center for Economic Growth in Georgia becomes the premier producer of reports on buying power and breaking it down by race in the country. Again, I'm skipping some things, but, but as they say, this is a way to help specifically Georgia business people target their ad spending, and then using data that Selig says, well, they say in their own language, estimates and projections, but based on a method that it suggests that if you buy their report will, will be revealed, that they're determining the buying power of different communities. Uh, and what they really are is simply a measurement of where are consumers of different communities spending their money and on what product. But because it says power and because it says buying in it and because it's connected with intentionally, this is done, connected to legacies of, of, of boycotts and, and Black liberation just in general and Black entrepreneurialism and what is a longer, again, promoted mythology of capital. And even cooperative economics. Cooperative. It even, so it's even, it's even there that it's misunderstood. Um, so in other words, what is supposed to be data to help manage unrest or to help manage the distribution of ad revenue is intentionally promoted to Black communities. Now, this is where it gets a little nuanced and a little complicated, somewhat complicated to the extent that this is at all complicated, because it's not economics. The data is clear, and we can come back to that, that you know, Black people economically, materially are, are devolving, things are getting worse than ever, and there's no sign of improvement. Uh, and that's just for Black people. I would argue this would be largely the case for most people, but anyway. But specific to Black people, buying power, which is used as a measurement for, for everybody in every community, has been rebranded and weaponized and targeted at Black people specifically as a mechanism to prevent political organization that wants political power. It's, it's meant as a distraction to say all of your problems can be by getting your money right first, financial literacy, business, proper investment. Then you can, as the mythology goes, buy your politicians like everyone else and then become uh, politically powerful, uh, when the reality is the exact opposite. 
that through uh, capture of the political apparatus, the wealthy continue to be able to extract. And the only hope that working people, Black people in particular, have is through numbers, through organization, and through uh, engaging both the electoral political world and everything else very differently than is encouraged. So the nuanced part that I kind of, that I definitely skipped over is that the process through which this occurs is that, again, starting really around the 1950s and John H. Johnson through Ebony and Jet and wanting to promote that his Black owned media accumulate and attract white corporate funding through ad revenue, sort of bought into the buying power concept and bought into a, a sort of symbiotic relationship with the government and the white corporate world that wanted to a promote black people as potentially becoming free through american capitalism that could be used to promote american capitalism around the world post second world war to justify it as the singular dominant power in the world with all the right answers and solution where even the formerly enslaved can rise through the ranks and become middle-class citizens in cars and driveways and picket fences and all that. And then the corporate world was saying, well, if black people have an income that they need to spend, well, why not get some of that? Why should black businesses get it? So if we can market through black media to get what dollars exist, we'll be willing to engage in that. And that sort of began a problem that exists really to this day where the black commercial press including the Black digital media world that wants to attract ad revenue from the $600 billion annual pot that is spent every year on, on, on ads, they have to promote that their audience has money to spend and are happy to, to help concoct both reports and reporting about buying power that suggests that ultimately Black people are materially unequal because of financial illiteracy and poor spending habits. And if they pull their resources and invest and you know, open up businesses. And certainly if they use their money to buy the products being advertised in that media, much of which is coming from white corporations, they can move up in the world as well. And all will be well, which is why you get a lot of you know, cheerleading in the Black press just in general for Black people. But when it comes to economics, everything comes down to Black people not knowing how to spend money so that the mythology can maintain itself so anyway let me stop there no no it's good it's good so you know the, the, the takeaway i i got is like the unpacking of this really violent notion that it is both projected but also internalized that the poverty that we experience is not a result of historic or contemporary oppression uh it could be alleviated if you got smarter or if you invested instead of shopping right which is that's it Stop buying weed and rims and, and Jordans and hair and all that. Yep. And so the two questions that I want to get to are one, how do we have a trauma informed engagement with people that have been really impacted by this thinking? Cause it's deep. And then secondly, what are the micro tactics for people who do agree? So that I, I want to preview that in like, personalizing this a little bit because you know this show is an extension of like we said participation in movement building specifically you know and we might if, if we have time we hopefully can get into like some of your movement commentary a little bit but coming out of for better or worse the movement for black lives blm ecosphere but intersecting with other you know grassroots and radical struggles have been in this space but a lot of people may not know that like the entry point for that for me came from a childhood development 
in being like a prodigy of financial literacy space in ways that like I've had real identity crisis about at times. But also uh, I was one time talking to um, this is kind of a flex of a name drop right here. I was talking to Robin Kelly <laughs> one time in his office, <laughs> and he said that it, that it actually uh, is. You know, flex. <laughs> you know, Robin Kelly yeah. Flex, yeah. yeah, I threw that down on you. <laughs> um, uh, and and he, he told me to like actually dig into it deeper because the, the story is actually important. It actually starts with my mother. In the mid-90s, as like a secretary, somebody gave her a copy of uh, Black Enterprise, and then she started reading the ma- the magazine Better Investing, and she started basically organizing with her girlfriends to build like a cooperative investment club. Right? It was called Ujama. It was an Americanized uh, <laughs> pronunciation of Ujama, which for folks who don't know is Swahili for cooperative economics. And then built a youth program called Ujama Junior that I started in when I was five years old. And so by the time I was nine, I had a speech called the ABCs of investing that explained the basics of like fundamental investing. And our whole mission statement was using this strategy to address socioeconomic inequality. And so by the time I was 10, I was on the cover of Better Investing. By the time I was 19, I was featured in Black Enterprise. Uh, oh, wow. Right. But the whole thing sorry, was... What I have to say, in the middle, <laughs> there was also a uh, remarkably viral local news clip that continues to circulate. It's on PBS. It was, it was national, Daniel. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. But we'll, we'll, be, we'll get like comments on our Twitter being like, oh my God, is this you? Is, the, is this the, the investing time. guy? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, so, you know, the, the, the whole notion <laughs> was, right? And I also was a sneaker collector. So I buy Nike stock and then do the blah, 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 you know, all of that shit. Right. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm, and so I was seen mm-hmm. and like prodigy is prodigalized, prodigized, whatever. They, they called me a prodigy by capitalist institutions as a young person. And my whole mission was how can I address the inequity of the North and South side? Right. So now I went to school, this kind of like social justice leaning campus where I met this fellow over here, uh, Grinnell College, studied in sociology and economics, calling it socioeconomics. My whole thing is I'm supposed to come back with my to my community with this knowledge that we don't have, right? With the things that we don't get at the, the dinner table, but I was fortunate that my mother created this space where I'm reading stock reports and blah, blah, blah. Uh, and started learning about structures because I understood industry and I understood the economy and I knew what GDP was and I knew what had just happened in the financial crisis um, and and was, you know, a humanist and, or whatever you want to call it. Right. And so started learning about intersectional structural oppression, learned about capitalism and, and found that the well-intended message that I had been saying for a long time was at best short-sighted. Right. And then as getting, finding myself in movement space and then becoming you know, devoutly and publicly anti-capitalist, right? Also, how do I reconcile that so many people heralded me for this, but I would not have studied economics and sociology if I was not in that space, right? I would not have been like asking these questions about inequity and even had the sense to question capitalism. So that goes back to then the two questions that, that I have for you that have, it's not a challenge, but this is the conversation when I watch you that I've been eager to hear is one, when I've seen you talk to people that are like devout believers in this, there's like a religiosity. There's also a trauma of how black people see ourselves that is like deeper and psychological. And it's not just about like evidence. Right. Uh, and then secondly, as somebody who's like, oh, when I first saw you in this rabbit hole that went from the reinvention of Malcolm X lie to you talking about the <laughs> Black Panther movie to then, oh, now I'm getting to mythology of black <laughs> that, biopower. That algorithm will get you. It, you know? I was like, yo, this, you know, this is 2015, 2016. I'm like, yo, he is saying the thing that I'm trying to figure out how to reconcile and how to say more explicitly. Um, so now that I believe that, 
people still come to me about what can we do economically. I have people that are even in movement spaces that like, we agree, we need a collective mass action to overturn the structures of our society. What do then people who say yes do literally like with their dollars or without dollars or with resources around, you know? So those are my two questions coming out of that personal narrative of like, you were a deep affirmation for me, but there's a, I'm saying this because I know that space and it's a lot of well-intended people in that space and they think they're doing the thing. Um, But then also for people who are able to break out of the matrix, what then can we start to talk about practically? So first of all, again, I I appreciate all of that. On the one hand, I just always want to be clear. I'm not saying you were saying this, but I would want to be clear to anyone who, 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 who listens and might feel the same way. I never intend for anyone to feel ashamed at all for having been at one point supremely duped by what's going on here. I think we all have, I mean, on some level or or still are. And having gone through and studied uh, um, the history of mass communication in this country, I've learned and come to appreciate more and more the amount of money and time and effort spent in the United States in particular to propagandize everybody is beyond, I think, most of our abilities to even concede. You know, we hear propaganda thrown around, but but they take this, I mean, anyway, it's so so the experience you demonstrate that I think many of us have had a version of or another is by design. I mean, it's worked at. I mean, it's consciously intended. What I learned in the buying power work more than any at any time, more than I would realize when I started the project, is that that myth in particular has been selected and imposed. I mean, Nixon said, we want to redefine Black power as Black capitalism so that they don't take Kwame Ture or Stokely Carmichael's definition. So, of course, they had young Black men in suits with books looking all handsome on their way to college. And it would say something to the effect like Black power, you know, means going to college and, you know, investing. And like James Brown was a part of it, right? Like, of course, <laughs> which like parallels to your talk about Jay Z a lot. <laughs> and and I always like to remind: Is Daruba Ben Wahad, former political prisoner, Black Panther, Black Liberation Army, one of my favorite people ever? As he has said and continues to say, if you listen carefully, James Brown in "I'm Black and I'm Proud" never himself sings the hook. It's the children that say, I'm black and I'm proud. He says, say it loud. That's hilarious. And then it's the children. And his point is the movement. But his point was like, we made James do that song because we dragged him for being a black capitalist and supporting Nixon. So this was his like, I'm still here. Like, you know, I'm trying to be dead, but he couldn't go so far as to say it. Say it himself. (laughs) You say it loud. I'm going to get this check. It doesn't work as call and response if one person's not calling. Like, it's just a response. That's Great. really funny. So <laughs> anyway, all of that is encouraged. So, so you know, very few of us are born into radical settings and families uh, and, and communities. And then as a now a father, I'm learning how hard it is and seeing why there's been such a, a break from becoming radical and then radicalizing your children in the same way. So like the, the cycle consistently breaks and has to be rebuilt and the propaganda gets more sophisticated. You know, they, they're constantly studying how to update 
the techniques and the delivery mechanism. So, so the short answer is to, to what to do about it. I don't know. I honestly don't know. And I'm still trying to rebrand and reshape my own argument in the hopes that it can be more effective. Although I don't know that that's possible. I don't even yeah. know that that's right. Yeah. Um, so I, I really don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And, and I'm not expecting you to know all I'm asking from, I'm, I'm thinking of, I'm sorry to folks should like go in your YouTube history, but I'm thinking of this old video that used no, to go around. No, they should go in your YouTube By YouTube. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but but th- there was this old video, it hit a core for me of you on this radio station, very simply and, and you know, I think non-combatively, just like explaining capitalism <laughs> and th- this mythology, right? And then there's the like the black banker guy who oh, yeah. was like so devout and like, almost like her, you know, it was, I hate to do it, but it's, it's very much like you were telling him Jesus wasn't real or that his pastor is a liar, right? right? Like right, there was, right. it wasn't even about anything that you could say or anything that you could like offer. There was a deep belief in like, we have to be able to pull ourselves up or we have to be able to make better choices or we have to be able to build institutions, right? Like as the world is. And and we could get to the second part of the question, but just to clarify in like growing up and becoming an adult and like knowing some people that like still do some of that work, especially after uprising people then were trying to like have this conversation more around capitalism. And I just found myself, particularly with this black group in Milwaukee that we won't have to get too much deeper in that. They, <laughs> it, it was just very difficult for them to be able to understand the harm of the economy. And I, I was just wondering if in your practice, this is not, an economic conversation. There's like some psychological, cultural, deep-rooted things. I may not be asking, figure it out, but I, I'm trying to figure out how to have that conversation with people because I think there's a lot of capacity there. Um, yeah. And and even some resources there sometimes that can be used into some good work, which then gets to my second question of when folks then take the red pill, and I'm going to keep using the matrix analogy, your argument is very precise on a macro level. Do you have hypotheses of what one person or six to 12 people can do in service of being a part of global transnational transstructural collective movement. Like, do you got a 401k? Like what the hell? Like what, 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 like, what you I mean, yeah, do? I mean, so that's, I mean, so I do, but I was, but I'm trying to think, is it actually, and that's I a joke. You don't actually have to. No, no, no. But I think, no, what I do, I mean, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a Maryland state, professor so on some level it's not even a choice uh but i don't is it i'm trying to think it might i think it has a different name i think it's a different form of that mm-hmm, thing mm-hmm. i don't even know what my ira own, or something I, like that yeah. yeah all i know is 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 my wife is in charge of all of that and, and everything else and i and i keep asking her at what point can i quit and she just keeps saying not yet so so that's that's the i just keep can i quit today every day it's like can i quit do we have enough for me to quit because i'm ready to quit and uh uh, no anyway but um the what to do part is 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 simple and vague and goes back to teray himself we have to join more organizations so what can six to twelve people do they have to join or form organizations and keep going farther to the left. And I, my, my public response is really bad in this. And it, it kind of goes to the question of, of, of the banker who was the, the president of, of industrial bank in DC, who, to your point, when you mentioned GDP, you said, you know what it was, he apparently doesn't. So this mm-hmm. was like, this was part of the problem. And, and which is a, which is a result of trauma. 
I, I feel that's what I'm saying. So yeah. like, I see it as a result of trauma and profound ignorance. And then on some level, and I'm not always sure where, how much of, of the blend is, which is just conscious choice making, you know, some, some of these cats are just making a choice and they don't give a damn. They really don't, they, they don't care. They'll do the black speech and all they really want to do is get back in their bins and go golfing. And that's it. And growing up in the DC and surrounding area, where you see black bourgeoisie and black capitalism at its height. There's a lot of that. No, nah, some people it's came frustrating. up. A lot of people did come up. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, relatively, and it's not even they've come up, up. They've just come up <laughs> relative to the traumatic starting right. that you're talking about. And that's the problem. We're starting with the most profound trauma. And that's the, the part of the head start that the white ruling elite gets is that you've started this community off from the most profound trauma and everything else is said to be progress and everything else is, we're still telling kids today who are killing each other all over the place. We're still telling them, but at least it's not Jim Crow. At least you're not on the plantation. And they're like, wait a minute, but I'm still 14 poor and have a gun in my hand. And starving. Yeah. And starving. So I have tried to I mean, I really don't have the temperament necessary to do what I think needs to be done because yeah. I, I really do struggle. I at some point want to just say, like, I mean, you know, I mean, honestly, part of it is like we we just need to step outside and fight right? because this this conversation is not working. And and well, Dr. Ball, I don't think that's an effective transformative tactic. It's not. So. That's why I'm saying that's why I'm saying that's that's why like I, it's not it doesn't it's not effective. You don't win them over, and then I'm physically not. Ca- I mean, I'm. You know, I'm. I'm Can you even squabble like still? I, is this the real question? That's what I'm saying. That's what I'm saying. I, you know, like talking about pervasive myths. Yeah. You know, the that's, idea that's pervasive mythology. Yeah. No, as soon as because as soon as I get up from this chair, I'm reminded of the mythology of what it feels yeah. like to actually have to go physically do something. I might say Absolutely. it. Let's go outside. As soon as I start to get up, and my back locks up, and my shoulder hurts, and my neck, uh-huh. it's like uh-huh. okay. So, so I try to adjust and, and, and that's what I'm saying. Like, but I do also hear this Kwame Ture clip from back in the day where he said, like, with our people, we will come to them with an argument and an analysis and lay it out and they'll knock us back and we'll come back and do it again. And we'll, and we'll come, knock us back, come back and do it again. And then he said, but at a certain point, And I forgot how he put it, but at a certain <laughs> point, there's conflict. So as I'm sitting there with that, with the, with the banker dude, like he was emblematic of the problem. Like you're either wildly ignorant through the trauma and by the re- logical result of this system. And divestment from education. Or <laughs> it is in your class interest as a yeah. banker to tell mm-hmm. Black people to give me what money you have and I will turn it into something that's good for the community. Because what else is he going to say? So that's why he was saying it's he said our buying power is our GDP. And that's factually incorrect on every <laughs> level, you know, starting with the fact that GDP doesn't measure inequality. Yeah. GDP is our GDP. <laughs> GDP <laughs> is the GDP. And we anyway, I mean, it, it, it's yeah. it's anyway. No, I feel yeah, you. No, I feel to, you. No, I hear I, I hear. Go, go just to the to that kind of like trauma informed response question. I don't obviously have it, but I'm thinking about. We kind of just framed it as like either there's ignorance or there's intentional, you know, kind of malevolent manipulation. And I think there's also the possibility. I just think about the interpersonal analog to all this of when something is out of your control, the logical leaps that you create to feel like you have some control. Right. 
it feels like a fight against despair sometimes and hopelessness. Right. Like I think about even in like personal relationship, it's like, oh, this person's mad, so they must be mad at me, so I can change my behavior to address the thing. And it's like, this shit doesn't have anything to do with what I'm doing right now. <laughs> I'm, right. Re- I'm receiving the result of it. <laughs> right. Again, that doesn't condone the effects, but I can imagine that as a motivator of like, here's a thing that feels tangible, even if it, there's a logical leap that feels within our and my control. Because we do understand ourselves in this culture as consumers more than we understand ourselves as citizens or neighborhood members or, you know, that's a role we know how to perform across the board. No, that's that's a really good point. And really, that's something that I'm more mindful of than I think I'm being in this conversation in, in general. <laughs> and part of what even this 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 particular book project has shown me is to be more mindful of the mechanism that produces those logical leaps or encourages them. Of course, the oppression is continuing. The inequality is continuing and worsening. And then when I looked at sort of the organization of the prevalence of the claim that buying power is real and Black capitalism is a possibility, and if we just got our businesses right, we could do better, and the the amount of celebrity and the amount of Black radical celebrity And then the way the argument is rebranded in the cooperative economics argument, you know, everybody across the black political spectrum has bought into the myth at one point or another, which again, makes me look even worse when I walk into the room and say, hey, everybody from Garvey to Du Bois, like this was the one thing they agreed on or one of the few things they agreed on. Even Martin. (laughs) <laughs> Dr. King a little bit, but he he kind of had a mechanism for checking himself that brought him back to the federal government. So he he was and in fact, he by the end of his life explicitly said, you know, buying black and banking black and all that doesn't work. But there are people to this day who champion black capitalism who falsely claim the exact opposite. So there are people who are out here just either ignorant or lying or both and then who are then promoted and encouraged to circulate the mythology. It's attached very much to the circulating black dollar mythology. And that people from, again, Du Bois to Garvey to to King a little bit, to Malcolm, to Farrakhan, to to Claude Anderson, to Boyce Watkins, to, I mean, everybody, you know, has said this. You know, I was sitting, I remember years ago sitting in this, this, this meeting this very radical space. And I said something along these lines and the brother sitting next to me says, wait a minute, that sounds like you're advocating socialism because, because, because black capitalism can be, and I looked at him and I was literally shocked. And I said, I can't even, I was something to the effect. I can't believe you're saying that in this space, like in all the spaces in the world where I thought I could be free from that. And then in, in our heart, like people aren't waking up saying, I want to get into this risk-taking political struggle that don't nobody know how to do which is the, the thing of the question of like right you say like join organization and a lot of people who probably are going to listen to this have joined organization and they're still this like <laughs> and then what or how do we push it left well that's we the other part or we don't even like each other discussion. Like, oh, no. i know but that's <laughs> that's what happens in those spaces because yeah. Part of the problem is that the public discussion is always advocating what has to be advocated publicly for people to survive, maintain their platforms, keep their jobs. And then, of course, where it's funded and commercially viable, it's a space where it's going to overtly promote buying power, Black capitalism, start a Black business, 
participating in this research last year, I got one of my favorite stats that I keep dragging out is that from 1992 to 2012, Black people created more than 2 million businesses. And the amount of national revenue captured every year by those businesses went down to 0.3%. And Black people start businesses at a higher rate than any other group in America. People have been doing it successfully and unsuccessfully for a century. And and then they keep telling me when I say we need to get radically militant and organized, they say, well, we've tried that. And I'm saying, but no, no we we've tried that. <laughs> we yeah. tried the business joint. We tried the cooperative economics joint. We've we tried, tried the, the black saving banks. our money joint. Yeah. We tried the lottery. We've tried the numbers. We've tried everything. <laughs> yeah. And here we are. Yeah, yeah. And none of those, unlike the organization, have been attacked by the most powerful state in history. So it's not that the organization was wrong. It's just that it was insufficient. Maybe the target for victory was set too short and we were expecting too much too soon. And, and because of that, the branding came back again. I mean, if you kill a whole bunch of people, put a whole bunch of political prisoners in, in jail to this day, exile Asada Shakur and Nahanda Abiyadun and all these other people. And des- destroy national struggles throughout the world. And then get right back on TV and say, you have buying power, go shopping or, or shop wisely and say, or whatever. Then of course, like they're not going to come on TV and say, hey, everybody, here's what Asada Shakur did. <laughs> you should do this too. And here's the local meeting place where you can go get it done. You know, they're not going to No, what they will do is say, you could put Asada taught me on your shirt. Mm-hmm. Just don't do or organize or look for or or free her comrades. Don't do any of that. You know, anyway, now, so now, now we're course. getting to it. And you can even sell the shirts. You can form an LLC. <laughs> and, and you can, can sell, sell the shirts. You can be a, a small business owner. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. That, oh, man. We get so I knew this would happen. Uh, I, I have way more things than we have time for and being respectful of your time. I'll shout some of them out. Because I think I'm going to try to to implore you to come back at some point and we do a part. Yeah, two. man, let's we can we can even schedule this right away. Cause, OK, cause for sure. I know the, the, the time constraints are my yeah. fault. So no, it's I'm all good. That'd that. be dope. So some of the things Dame, like, Dame, would you call this a wish we had the, a little more time? If, if we had more time. Yes. If we had a little more time. So some of the things I know we would get to uh, is you've been in your Bitcoin bag a lot recently, oh, which is, is basically an expression yeah. of this. So I feel like folks can get the gist of it. And also there's a lot of content on it. So go go check out. Uh, and then really what you really started to get into was a deep interest of mine that needs more time and space is movement, movement critique, movement analysis, the relationship between observer and internal. And I think the ways in which you've tried to navigate that and, you know, discuss movement tension sometimes i don't know like be a sobering presence also a, a loving critic i would let i would let you name it if we had the time and that's something i would be really interested to have conversation in maybe we could but talk kind of a little a, bit about that actually kind of the closing umbrella maybe in, in getting to that just real quick the very short thing on the crypto for now and again i'm happy to come back very soon we can do this whenever is that it's essentially just a rebranded argument for black capitalism Beyond that, I would encourage people to really to watch. I've watched it several times now. Just uh, people may have already seen that that the, this line up uh, video from uh, I forgot their name already, but it's got almost six million views at this point. So probably some of you have seen it already. But in terms of what of the, of the breaking down what is actually going on, I think that is as good as it gets. My particular argument has been around the same thing with black capitalism, 
stop telling me that this is a pathway to liberation. If you want to invest in speculation and do all that black capitalist stuff, stay in that lane and I'll save that argument for another day, but stop coming into what I consider my lane and telling me that this is going to save us. Yeah. If we had just invested in in Bitcoin, we'd be free. Like that's, that's incredibly frustrating yeah. to me. <laughs> so, um, yeah, sorry. Go ahead. No, go ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So I want to I want to leave us with like a point of inquiry that we could come back to that I think is really important. And then I'll give you kind of like a closing question or a place for reflection for you. So one, I think where we left is like, how do we engage this? The trauma slash malicious, you know, selfishness and Somebody you know that I'm really close to is Aislinn Pulley. Uh, we work together at Chicago Torture Justice Center. She's been Man, very shout out to her. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so at the Chicago Torture Justice Center, there's this, which is birthed out of reparations for police torture uh, here, here in the city. One of the things is a politicized healing framework. And so a point of inquiry to like talk about the mythology of black capitalism is I would love to for y'all to check in around politicized healing. But my kind of throwaway, let, let's, let's close out for you, is all these things like I keep referring to was me kind of finding you on YouTube. And after I heard about, you know, mythology, I would just search Jared Ball and see what's coming <laughs> on. I mix what I like, like periodically, right? And it would be this slow trickle, a little bit of there, a little bit there. And then around pandemic time, there was this like robust shift in media making that that you've been a part of. And the I mix what I like page then became a show on the page that is now titled Black Power Media. And I didn't have to resubscribe. And so I would really want to talk more about that, but just kind of in closing for the sake of your time. How does it feel <laughs> to have have been doing that work and created this media ecosystem? Because I think it's in line with some of our aspirations here with Ergo Media. Well, let me try to fold several of those points together here, because part of my movement critique came from having been an active participant for however long. I don't know how these things are defined necessarily uh, and, and a student of them for much longer. And now I'm not nearly as involved as I think I would need to be to have my criticism be more meaningful and to have the impact that it, that it should have. So I, it doesn't, that's a self critique that's, you know, but um, the move into the media work is on, on some level, just easier and more natural to where I am right now, relative to all of the things, you know, to life and everything happening, but at the same time, trying to play that same supportive role. So I've, I've, you know, for a long time in, tried to engage the philosophy of emancipatory journalism. Shout out to Professor Hamed Shaw for coining that. And the, the simple point is that journalism has to be part and tied inextricably to activist organizational work. That the journalism should emanate from that with principle and solid work perform the task of media making and journalism that is in service of that struggle. And that's sort of what I've always, you know, tried to do and wanted to be a part of, even as I see myself being less of a participant immediately in that, in that struggle for a variety of reasons, some of which involves all of the things that I think has been predicted and argued by many people and many great people for a long time, the creeping corporatization, the nonprofit liberalization, the intensified psychological warfare, the sort of post-COINTELPRO capture of, of successive generations having to sort of restart everything. And at this point, a level of sophistication that the state has in terms of media technology and beyond to, to, to promote and pick off, rebrand, cancel, marginalize, 
and produce a sort of activist consciousness that we've never seen before. I mean, so it, it's um, air quotes there for so, folks who missed that on the uh, right. Sorry, right, <laughs> forgot, right. The, so I think uh, uh, myself, both generationally and politically, I find myself in a, in a, what feels like a growing group of people that are. I think with varying degrees of uh, awareness or self-awareness or being willing to admit are marginalized and are trying to find ways to have an impact on people doing work and, and who, are, who are, you know, seen as at least, you know, both popularly and in the streets or in the grassroots doing good work. It feels, I can't prove it, but it certainly feels like this is, in other words, I often somewhat joke. I hope it's the result of a COINTELPRO. I'm like, I hope, it, you know what I mean? Like, I, I hope we've risen to that. Because for, for it to have happened this way sort of naturally would be really disappointing. Mm-hmm. That's so funny. I, I hope this is COINTELPRO. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I, I know it's crazy, right? Because, I mean, because in other words, if those in power have been able to, through media and education and and destruction of previous organizations or whatever been able to produce these results just sort of as a normal course of business i feel like that's even worse than if it required a specific operation to do it and i'll just stop there with the with the core of the work that i th- i see it's doing is is wanting to remind folks that there are histories that are in, in traditions being marginalized here that we can find ways to radically incorporate to what's happening happening now so that's why we talk so much about political prisoners. That's mm-hmm. why we talk uh, so much about, you know, all of those, you know, socialisms and colonialisms and pan-Africanisms that are not encouraged. And and to anyone that hears this or, and, and says that 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 answer is whack, I I agree with you. In my, <laughs> I mean, I do. I mean, I really do. I just don't. I don't have a better one. It's yeah. unless I start lying. Sometimes we gotta admit that we're whack. <laughs> and grounded in lineage. I mean, no, that's joking. that's at least for our work, we'll, we always try to come back to is in those moments of unsureness or trying to fit, like, where does this come from? Who did that work? What do we learn? What do we contribute? And like that in and of itself, before you get past that is a good starting place, I think. Obviously, this feels like the beginning of many more and a longer conversation. Um, really appreciate your your thoughts and time and generosity. Where can folks find you and your work and the ways you want to be found? At I mix what I like for all your relevant social media, and uh, I'm, it's not hard. I'm not hard to find, and and <laughs> and it was it, it's it's a pleasure. I really appreciate you all reaching out, and uh, I I definitely want to do more. So like as soon as yeah, you all can touch. schedule it, let's do it. That's love. Yeah, let's really, talk. Really appreciate you. Thank you so yeah. much for your time. Anytime. And we'll be back on the line reshaping the culture of our city and world for the more liberatory and creative. Much love to the people. Peace. Peace.